Good morning. That video is proof that summer, it does exist in the lower mainland. Come on. Although, how many of you were laughing at Toronto yesterday or the day before? Snow on the ground, all kinds of stuff like that. But we're here, sunny outside, the crocuses are coming, and God is still good. Even when the weather isn't, right? All right, we're going to go into a new series today. Uh, you're nothing wrong with your eyes. That is exactly how it's supposed to be. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll go from there. <clears throat> this is Jesus speaking. It's, a, it's about Jesus speaking. It, we're beginning at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. There's a lot of blessing going on. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. <laughs> you underline this one. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You don't have to say anything back on Facebook. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You can relax. It's all right. You know that the whole context of this story, because when you listen to some of what Jesus just said there, you're thinking, that's really a great bunch of platitudes. It's really nice words, a feel-good sermon, but really it doesn't work in the real world. It's really a, just a bunch of stuff that this teacher guy said 2,000 years ago that doesn't make any difference, can't make a difference in the real world that we live in. Has he been to my workplace? Has he experienced what I'm going through? Is he aware of the world that we we live in. And so pulled apart from the context of what was happening, you don't understand what Jesus was saying. But just the chapter before, Jesus had just begun his ministry. In fact, he was baptized just like many uh, 13 people were last Sunday, which was a great day. 13 people were baptized. Jesus also was baptized. We follow his example. As he started into something new, he was baptized, and then he went through a period of testing, and he comes out and he begins to minister, says that he was teaching and preaching and healing all kinds of people. In fact, in chapter 4, he began to call people to him. And he's teaching, preaching, healing. And this is what happened. It says, news about him spread all over Syria, which is the neighboring country, began to hear about it. People were brought to him who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds, somebody say large. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, that's 10 cities, and Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Large crowds followed him. So all these things are going on in that moment, and in that moment we can see that Jesus is not just saying something without feeling. In fact, when you see the context, Jesus is very compassionate with where you are. He's very compassionate, very aware of the difficulty. He's very aware of the 
pain. He's very aware of the disease. He's very aware of the struggle. He's very aware of the marriage issue. So what he's saying is not uh, just a bunch of platitudes. He's saying, I'm aware of what's going on. And he begins to move in powerful ways to touch presenting needs. And he begins to touch people's lives, and people were beginning to get healed, and their life was going to be, or is beginning to be changed by the power of God. And so when you look at it in that context, it has a little different ring. It's, it's not just an unfeeling, do this, do this, and you'll, your life will be blessed. But what's really incredible is when the power of Jesus begins to move in people's lives, you can't keep people away. And when you begin to tell the story of God at work in your life, and this is just on the side, when the, when the word begins to get out of what Jesus does, Jesus draws people to himself. Jesus is not weird and people run away from him. Jesus attracted children. Jesus attracted people who knew they had need. Jesus attracted people who had desperate marriage problems. In fact, Jesus said, I am not, I am like a doctor. I don't treat healthy people. I treat people who are aware of their desperate need for me. That's the kind of people that I'm looking for. Because people who think they don't need me won't listen to me. That's for free. Now look what's happening. Another nation's talking about it. Another cultural group, those 10 cities called the Decapolis, were a, cities, were a center of Greco-Roman culture. They were not Jewish as Jesus was. They were a whole other cultural group. But the word was getting out because Jesus was touching lives. Went into another nation because Jesus was touching life. There was an overflow into, a, into the capital city. Places of influence were talking about this new Jesus that was compassionate, that was not like everybody else, that was aware of needs, in fact, was not only aware of them, but was somebody who could do something about them. And so all these crowds are coming around him, but it is not what you think. It's not what you think. Lord, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's powerful. I pray you give us ears to hear what we need to hear in our own heart. Lord, that you will speak in spite of me. You will speak through me. In Jesus' name, amen. It's not what you think all the time. My wife and I were talking about this yesterday, Shanda. And uh, when you get married, you have some expectations sometimes of what you think it will be like. Sometimes it's different. I'm careful. I'm like on the edge here like this. But one of the things that uh, marriage is always, uh, when you're newly married, you, uh, and I've got to be careful here, and, and uh, at, at the end of the day, you go to bed. And that's a good thing. And so one night uh, when we were very, very early married, I'm stumbling on my words, um, very early married, and uh, we had gone to bed and we um, were reading to each other, and then we fell asleep, um, yeah, because the reading was over, and so then we went to sleep, and, and suddenly uh, later in the night, uh, uh, I woke up with pain in my arm. Like, it's like, what is going on? And I look over and Shanda is biting my arm like a rabid animal. And I smacked her like that. I did. I did. I just pushed her away. What are you doing? And she said, I was asleep. I said, well, for an asleep person, you're pretty active. She said, I was having a nightmare, and I was defending myself. I said, I don't know what nightmare is, but I don't want to be in it. I am a dream. Your dream come true. <laughs> Sometimes it's not what you think. It's like when your kids convince you to buy a dog. 
Oh, Dad, we are going to care for that little thing. We'll feed him. We will cuddle him. We will breath him. We will do everything. You will not. You are liars. <laughs> How many parents can say amen to that right now? I know you had good intentions, but it's not what you think. They're not going to care for him. They're not going to walk him. They're going to be, it's my turn again. I did it on Friday between 3 and 3.02. <laughs> the dog is dying of no exercise, but uh, it's not what you think. It's worse. <laughs> uh, Bentley. Oh, we're praying for Bentley. Some people are praying for him to last a long time. Other people are praying other times. I'm not really. So don't you animal lovers, leave me alone. I'm fine. I fed him this morning, so he's good. So it's not what you think. Chapter 4 ends with large what? Large crowds. Large crowds. Look at what Jesus does. He sees the crowd, though. He sees the crowd, and what does he do? Put back verse 1 up on the screen there. He saw the crowd. He went, this wonderful thing. He sees the crowd, and he rose up on a mountainside and sits down. He sees this crowd, and he turns and goes up on a mountainside and sits down. Now, if you think about that, he moves away from the crowd. He not only moves away from them, he doesn't just go down the street. He says, I'm going to go on a mountainside. And the mountain where he went up was estimated, where they think they know where it was, is around 600 to 700 feet difference in height from where they were. And so Jesus is like, we're going on the gross grind. Or maybe the Abbey grind because it's not that big. But he says, we're going to come from right this nice easy place and I'm going to go up here. Crowd, if you want to come, I'm going this way. And then when he gets up on the top of the mountain, his, who came to him? His disciples came to him. Now, Marketing 101 here, Jesus, there's a crowd right here. Let's build on our success. Let's, let's keep this healing thing going. Maybe you can bless some water and we'll start selling it. Or maybe you can make some little dashboard Jesus thingy and we'll sell them little bobbleheads for Jesus. And we'll raise money for missions. It'll be amazing. Just can we do this, Jesus? I think it'll be good. Just too tacky? Okay, no. It'll be great. Or Oprah's calling and Ellen says she can fit us in on Tuesday. And Jimmy, Jimmy can fit us in. And I think if you do one of those little magic tricks where you heal somebody, it's going to be amazing. And Jesus saw the crowds, and he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Something significant there. Thank you. That was an amen. I don't know if you have the gift of interpretation. That was an amen. That out of the mouths of babes, God has perfected praise. <laughs> the parents will never bring him into service again. <laughs> It's all right. We love you. Okay. So the crowd that had been over here on the ground when all the stuff was happening, when Jesus went up here and went to the mountain, went through a little bit, because if you're going 500 feet in elevation, it's going to take maybe one to two kilometers to get there. And when he turned around, who was left was disciples. The crowd that has, was there because of the miracle, the crowd that was there because of what Jesus did was now gone. When the difficulty came, when it took a little bit more than where they were, when he wasn't just handing out miracles, they were no longer there. The ones who were left were ones who said, I want to follow this Jesus. 
Because, right, you know, disciples came to him. His first recorded sermon begins right here. And because Jesus is never satisfied with you staying in the crowd. He's always looking to change your life, and that's what a disciple is. It's someone who's, I've chosen to follow Jesus, but some people want to remain in the crowd. They will follow him if they agree. They'll follow him if he gives me that job that I'm looking for. I'll follow him if he, if he gives me the love of my life that I've always been looking for. I'll follow him if he heals me. I'll follow him if he fixes my marriage. I'll follow him if I understand and agree with everything he's doing. I'll follow him if he doesn't challenge my lifestyle. I'll follow him if he gives me what I want. There's a crowd over here, and Jesus says, we're going somewhere. And he turns around and sits down, and all that's left is disciples. Jesus is never satisfied with a crowd who only follow him as long as their immediate need is met. And we're going to talk about that. He wants to see, he wants you to see that your need is deeper than what Canadian culture says success should be. He wants to flip on its head the idea of what our culture thinks is important. He's not an add-on. My first car was a 1989 Suzuki Swift. As a sidebar, 15.75% interest on it was crazy. I don't know why I did it, but I did. I had this car, and it had, I got it with nothing on it. These things, uh, little kids now, just follow with me. I know the windows go like this, but this one had this little arm on it. You turned it and the window went up. You turned it this way, the window went down. So it's a neat thing. It had no, it had no options. It had, did not even have a radio. I was the radio and I was the top 40 all the time. There was nothing on it, no option, nothing. And then suddenly someone hit me, ran, hit and run, and my car was done. And then I, my next car was called a Dodge Spirit. So I went from the Suzuki Swift running everywhere really fast and to now I was moving in the Spirit, the Dodge Spirit. You know. Now I have a Santa Fe, which is the holy faith. That's so. I was moving in the Spirit, and my Spirit, this Spirit, though, had every option. It had power windows. It had power door lock. Like I could do it. People get out, and I'm like, I locked it and I unlocked, just like that. All kinds of things. Had all these options, plush seats, cassette player. That was amazing. It had all these options. And I think that many of us treat Jesus like the cassette player. Not necessary for the car to function, but it's a nice option to have. At least it was in 1993. Jesus is more than an option for your life. Jesus is the car, if you will, in the analogy. Because your most obvious need is not your most important need. You say, but, but Jesus, um, my financial situation, but Jesus, my sickness or my loneliness or, or Jesus, give me something, do something to relieve the immediate issue or pain in my life. Stop the emotional pain. Give me some friends. Give me a promotion. Do something for me, Jesus. You can do this. We look at our lives and we say, hey, it's kind of obvious over here. I need some help right here. The most obvious need in your life is not the most important need in your life. And Jesus is looking at your issues and he's saying, if I just give you more money or fix your relational issue, I know what you need. 
But he goes up on the mountain and he says, I'm happy to heal you. I've done it already. I've done so much. I'm happy to meet your physical needs. I'm happy to do all kinds of things, and I, I really want to do that. But there is more than what you think. See, because if I, if I just give you money, I know it will get spent, and there'll be, it'll run out. If I just give you a spouse, eventually, because I know you, you will get tired of them, and they will stop meeting your needs. If I just heal you, eventually, again, you're going to pass away. I got you to believe that what is your obvious need is not your most important need. And he's flipping the table on what we think is important. See, we think it, what's important is to be the most important, have enough money, have all the things, have, have my life to be healthy, have my life, my kids to love me, and that's all good stuff. But that's not the most important need in your life. Your most, import, your most obvious need is not your most important need. The Sermon on the Mount is this most famous part of the teaching of Jesus. Yet it's the least obeyed because it's completely counterintuitive to how we want life to go. It's opposite to the way that our culture says to live your good life. Our focus, more money, more power, more connections, more hustle, I'm, then I'm blessed, then I'm happy. But Jesus doesn't want to just put a Band-Aid on your life and fix the temporary need. He actually wants to transform your life so that you could be what you're always called to be. Not a momentary move, not a momentary thing, but a life-transforming thing that fixes things from the inside so that there's a long-lasting, never-stopping, ever-increasing, transforming life. Your most obvious need is not your most important need. I got a marriage issue. Not your most important need. Jesus can help you with it, but it's not your most important need. Jesus is calling people to live differently. And the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is trying to say the worst thing that we can do as a church is to try and do what God has called you to do while planning our lives, living our marriage, reacting to our pain, living our lives, spending our money, handling, handling our sex and our sexuality just like the world. Jesus is calling people to come from the crowd to, call, to become a disciple because over here is temporary. Over here is mere moments of things. But he says your most obvious need is actually found up here. Your most de desperate need is found up here. Your most important need is found up here. Your most important need is, is not that momentary thing that it's all going to burn anyway. At the end of the day, you need something more than you think that you need right now for your life. See, this Beatitudes is this incredible re-envisioning of the world. Where Jesus is saying to his disciples, well, one theologian puts it this way. In the Beatitude, Jesus puts out a new vision of a different world. He puts out a new vision of a different identity for yourself. He puts out a new vision of a different set of practices to live life. He puts out a new vision of a different relationship to, to the status quo of the world that we live in. And he begins to say, this is not impossible. Why is it imagined? Why is it only a vision? It's not because it's impossible. It's not because it's escapist. It's not because it's a fantasy, but it's because it's absolutely counter to everything that we're raised with and taught is important. And Jesus is flipping the table. He's turning everything around saying there's a new way of living that is not about me first, put myself on the top and get more and have more. And one one theologian said it this way, Jesus called to be, to be different from the people who are not his disciples. 
He calls us to be different from the crowd and come to be a disciple, and he's in that place that he promises to bless. Temporary, I'm going to work on things, I'm going to do things, but it's always to lead us from being the crowd to being a disciple. What Jesus is doing over here is not meant to just, okay, thank you for that vending machine, and then I go on to my next thing. It's actually God wants to get your attention to show you how much he loves you, how much he's for you, how much he's working in your life so that you don't stay in the crowd, but then you begin to move up the mountain to become a disciple that says, my, the, most, uh, the most desperate thing in my life is not actually the most important need in my life. I need something more. We're getting there. Are you getting the picture yet? See, and so it's not what you think. And it's, it starts off with these phrases of all this, bless this, bless that, bless the other thing. And there's this contrast through Scripture where Jesus actually wants your life to be blessed. So the people who want, believe that Jesus wants you to have a miserable life, read this. Jesus wants you to have the best life that he created you for, to have a marriage that thrives, to have a family that loves you, that you love, to be a person that stands with integrity in the midst of things, to be somebody that responds with love in the place of hate and all that. He says, I want you to have all that, but you're getting it from the wrong place. The biggest motivators in our life are joy and peace, and that's what Jesus has come to give. See, the, the Bible says that the devil has come to steal, kill, and destroy, and many of us could say, I've experienced that in my life. But Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Overflowing, more than enough, more than you can handle. That's the goodness and the grace of Jesus. Now, this word, blessed, comes, we like, some people would translated as happy. Blessed doesn't even capture the fullness of it. So I'm going to tell you something that I don't normally do. It comes from this Greek word makarios. Okay, after that I'm not saying it, the M word. It's a word that uh, specifically describes, and in Greek culture, which is where this word came from, describes, uh, has to do with the gods. And in Christianity they grab that word and it means godlike joy. And here's what, see the Greeks called Cyprus, if you know where Cyprus is in the Mediterranean, they called it this word that means happy isle. They use this same word, ha makariah, which means the happy isle. And they did so because they saw that this Cyprus was so lovely, so rich, so fertile an island, like Fiji, right? That there was never any need to be, even go beyond the coastline to find the perfectly happy life. No bad days in, in Cyprus said this is, there's no need. And so it had such a climate, such flowers, such fruit, such trees, such minerals, such natural resources that it contained within itself all the materials for perfect happiness. And so they're trying to say this is what happiness, this word blessedness means. Blessed means it has its, all its secret is within itself. It's a serene and untouchable. It's self-contained. It's completely independent of the chances and the changes of life. It's, it's beyond what you could think or imagine. The Beatitudes speak of a joy which seeks us through our pain. That speak of a joy which sorrow and loss and pain and grief are powerless to touch. It speaks of a joy which shines through tears. It speaks of a joy in which nothing in life or death can take away. The world can win its joys and the world can lose its joys. A change in fortune, a collapse in your financial portfolio, 
even some golden promise, the failure of a plan, the disappointment of an ambition, changing the weather, anything can take away your joy. And Jesus says, that's not what I'm talking about when I talk about blessed are you. I'm talking about something that is beyond that. It's, a, it's this greatness of these beatitudes is that it's not just some future day, but it's Jesus saying, here, now, here, now, Jesus can change anything, here, now. See, the greatness of these beatitudes is that they are a trump triumphant shout of permanent joy that nothing in the world can ever take away. Your most obvious need is not your most important need. And Jesus launches into this thing about who is blessed. Look who he says is blessed. The poor in spirit, the mourning one, the meek one, the hungry one, the merciful one, the persecuted one. And we sometimes look at that and we're like, I don't even really fully get that. It's kind of there, but I want to there's a pastor in Portland by the name of John Mark Comer, and has God has a name, he wrote the book. And he attempted to rewrite the Beatitudes in a way for our Western culture. He actually wrote it more for Americans, so I've massaged them a little bit to make them a little bit more, I think, for Canadian. But I want you just to follow along as I read these in 21st century vernacular. Blessed are the down and out the unemployed and the underemployed, those without a college degree, the immigrants, immigrants struggling to find their way, those who are spiritually simple, who really have very little to offer because they're fi they find their way to the kingdom of God. Blessed are the sad, the depressed, those grieving the death of a loved one, the failure of a marriage, another miscarriage, the pain of your family history, the racism of our nation, because one day God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Blessed are the quiet, the shy, the socially awkward, the uncool, the badly dressed, this verse is describing me, the, sick, the people with six followers on social media, because one day they will be free from the tyranny of what others think of them, and they will take up their role as a king or a queen over God's world. Blessed are the messed up, those who just can't get it together, the addict, the mentally unstable, the overweight, those from an abusive home, for they will one day be so full of God's life that they won't know where to put it all. Blessed is the little guy, the people who get stomped on, passed over, don't fight violence with violence. One day they will get all that mercy back with interest. Blessed are those who know the true source of peace and prosperity isn't a gun or an army, and they're willing to suffer to bring a new world to bear. One day in the future everybody will recognize that they are most like God. Blessed are all the Christ followers in a post-Christian culture that's hostile to all they believe. Even though they are made fun of, looked down on as stupid and mean and behind the times, they get to share in the cross-shaped life of Jesus and the kingdom of God that he brings. I think that opens it up a little bit more for you. It's all nice little words, but when suddenly it's, it's speaking to you, speaking to me, how many of you found yourself somewhere in there? Some of you put your hand up. I saw the socially awkward. Put your hand up. That's me. Okay, <laughs> you're not knowing what to do right now. But Jesus blesses the most unlikely of people. And instead of congratulating and saying good job to the powerful, to the rich, to the people who had it all together, he actually says to the people who don't, like we just described, you're the ones who are on the right track. And that stings in a world that just says it's all about your attainment and your achievement and what you have and what you're, who you know. And if we add all this together, we get something like this, that God blesses the most unlikely of people, and he blesses those who are overlooked, who stick with God through injustice, the messed up and the honest struggler. God blesses what is countercultural and revolutionary and so turns culture 
inside out and upside down. What is going to transform the culture of our nation is not more legislation. It's a people that live from the inside out and live countercultural and live in a higher level and live inside out, not worried about where they're going, how they're getting there, and what they're getting there in. They're living with a whole new perspective on life that their blessing is not on what they have. Their blessing is not on who they know. Their blessing is in found in knowing God in a powerful, powerful way. We're going to look at that right now. See, Jesus does not say these things to make you feel like there's something that you could never reach. He did not, do not ever make the mistake that Jesus came to teach only. He came to make me and you what he teaches we should be. He came to make you and me what he teaches we should be. In other words, he doesn't just put these things and say, now do it. He actually says, I'm going to help you and make you into a brand new person. Your background, your pedigree, your experience, your faults, all that doesn't matter. You begin a journey with me from the crowd to the mountain, and I'm going to rewrite your story. I'm going to do something with you that is impossible for you. I'm going to call you higher than you are right now. I'm going to take you into a new dimension in every area of your life. But you starts right here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the down and out, the unemployed, the underemployed, those without a college degree, the immigrants struggling to find their way, those who are spiritually simple, who really have very little to offer because they find their way into the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to stay in any of those places. What it's saying is that everybody who's in those places is trying to paint a picture of people who are absolutely desperately aware that they have nothing to bring to the table, that they can't do it by themselves. And so they come to Jesus and they say, God, I can't make it anywhere in my life. I am spiritually bankrupt. I've tried to fix my life. I've tried to change my life. I've tried to be a better husband. I've tried to not go into pornography. I've tried to not go into uh, sexual immorality. I've tried to figure out my identity. And we move into places and we just say, God, I can't do it. And the person who lives that way, the person who lives poor in spirit, Jesus actually says, you are going to enter into the kingdom of God in a whole new and a whole fresh way. It's not for somebody else. Humility is the entry point to greatness. Jesus never intended, he's not saying, oh, clap, clap, clap to be poor. If you've ever been poor, you, knew, you know in itself it's not a blessing. For real. The Bible's all about that. It says that we're to lift the poor. He's not saying blessed are you if you're hungry all the time, if you can't clothe your children. It doesn't mean that. In fact, the Bible is all about lifting the poor and the marginalized and the outcast. What he is saying is there's a pathway forward that's ever, forever going to alter the trajectory of your life. And this verse right here is the entry point into everything else that follows. Because our posture that's going to change the trajectory of your life is to be poor in spirit, to be somebody who says, I need God in every area of my life. Poor in spirit. Jesus is saying to this crowd that had become disciples, it's not about you getting all the power. It's not dependent on your social standing. It's not dependent on how bad or how good you've been. It's beyond the reach of those who think they have it all together. It's beyond the reach of those who trust in their wealth. It's beyond... But it's not beyond the reach of those who can't seem to find their way except to say, I need God. And that is not the end of the story. But to those who recognize and acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy before God, only to them is the, is the kingdom given. 
People who say, oh, I don't really need God. I, I said a prayer sometime, and I, I'm, I'm in. That's the beginning of the story. How many of you have ever been to uh, Disneyland or been to a play or something like that or have been to, maybe you've been to a movie or something like that, and you in your place where you need a ticket. So you get a ticket, you buy your ticket, and then what would it be like if you came up to Disneyland, we'll say, and you get your ticket and you're there early with everybody else because you got the early pass for the breakfast with the princesses because that's what I had to do. And we came in. What would it look like if you just went in and you got through the gate and you just stood there with your ticket? And we're like, that's an amazing ticket. I'm glad it got me through the gate. All of Disneyland is available for you, and you're just like, man, I got the ticket, and I got in. That's just the most important thing. I've got into Disneyland. And all around you is Space Mountain, my favorite ride. I don't like the ones that drop, though. Those are scary for me. Whatever your thing, all of it's available. You have the ticket, and you get in, and you live like, no, I'm, the most important thing is the ticket. Come on. And some of us live our Christian life that way. Oh, I made a decision for Jesus, and, and I go to church on Sunday. There's so much more for your life that God would call you to, that God would call us higher. For some of you, you're on the outside looking in, and, you're, and the first step is to be poor in spirit and say, I need God. But that never changes. Sorry, I didn't know it would be so loud. It never changes. And we live with a posture of saying, God, I absolutely desperately need you in my life. If I'm going to be part of moving from the crowd to being somebody who is a disciple of you, somebody who, whose life is transformed so that I can transform my world, I desperately need you, poor in spirit. Your most obvious need is not your greatest need. All of the blessedness is not a reward for your religious accomplishments. It's actually an act of God's grace in your life. The poor in spirit starts with grace. And everything that God wants to do in your life is through grace. It's not a performance thing. It's a receive thing. It's a surrender thing. It's a God help me thing. I can't fix myself. I can't be who I'm called to be without you. And it never stops. It never stops. And you know what also never stops? The transformation of Jesus working in you. Because he's not interested on just fixing some things and patching up your life for a momentary thing. He actually wants to see you move to become a disciple that is transformed from the inside through the entry point, through the ticket, through the entry point of being poor in spirit and step into a whole new way of living. The picture he painted in those verses of what of, of a church that engages in the world, a church that sees the, the marginalized, a church that sees beyond where people are at and says, there's a future for you in God. There's a bright hope for you in God. And we begin to stand and declare because we've come through the gate now and we're going to begin to say there is a fresh new life for my life. And then sometimes we go outside of the gate of Disneyland, and we go to talk to people and say, guess what? On the other side of that gate, so to speak, there's a whole new way of living. And the entry point, you need this poor in spirit, and you begin to come into a place of a whole new way of living. It's not what you think. It's not what you think. Only to those who acknowledge your absolute desperate need for God. See, Ephesians 2 says that God is so rich in mercy. And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Jesus from the dead. Romans 5, 8 says that 
that God showed his great love for, for us by sending Jesus to die for us while we were yet sinners. Well, we had no time for God. Well, we had no need for him in our own mind. Well, we spit in his face. He said, even you, I'm coming for you, and I'm going to sacrifice my life for you. I'm going to give my life for you. I'm not just going to do things for a moment. I'm actually going to change your life if you will allow me, if you will come in poor in spirit, if you will come in surrendered, if you will come in humble, if you will come in in a way that says, God, I need you. God will answer that prayer. We're praying for all kinds of things that we think we need over here. And the first prayer we should be praying is this prayer over here that says, God, I need you. Oh, God, I want you to fix this, do that, fix that. Answer all my prayers. And amen, and I'm going to sleep. God, I desperately need you. I can't be the man I'm called to be. I can't break the addiction in my life. I can't be the husband I'm supposed to be. I can't lead myself into my future. I am confused. I don't know where to go. I don't know the purpose to my life. But God, will you help me? And that's the entry point, the doorway, the key to a whole new way of living that Jesus painted. Radical living. Upside down, inside out, backwards, that changes culture from the inside out. First, your culture. It's Jesus who says... That God did not just come to save you, although that's good. It says that the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt, the marginalized, the messed up, all those who acknowledge their need, exchange their poverty for his extravagance. The first beatitude is simply an entry point. Notice it's the only one that's present tense. The poor in, the poor in spirit, the poor in spirit, they see or they get right then, it is, they will see the kingdom of God. They see something right then. And the rest is a process of being walked out. It starts with a present tense. God does something. He sets you in a new place and then says, this is what's in front of you. Will you follow me? That's why everything that we do today is because we want you to take a step. We want you to take a step towards Jesus. If you've never made him the forgiver leader of your life, we want you to take a step towards Jesus and come poor in spirit and say, I desperately need you. Some of you have been in the crowd and you've just stepped through. And all you are holding on your ticket. Jesus wants to marshal you, to use you in a world that's bankrupt of spiritual life, in a world that still sees children trafficked, still sees women abused, in a city where marriage is behind closed door, people get struck and hit. In a city where greater Vancouver, where almost three people a day die because of drug overdoses. In a city where there's pain and all kinds of things, Jesus does not want to just meet a need and not transform a life. Because, see, he could do this for a moment, but you will die, your money will go, all those kind of things. You will never change who you are. And life change doesn't happen from the outside in. It happens from the inside out. Those who surrender and acknowledge their need, God, I desperately need you. We don't even like the posture. But God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. He gives power to the humble. Everything that we need is found in that posture. There's a great picture of what Jesus offers. It's not just salvation, but a whole new way of living. I invite you to stand to your feet. Because he wants you to bring your life under his loving leadership to transform you.
so that you look at life. I am not a victim of my circumstances. I am not a victim of what my experience has been. I'm not going to live in a victim mindset. I'm going to invite Jesus into my story that in every season I can live blessed. In every situation, I can come through blessed. In times of injustice, I can come through and hold my head high, blessed by God. In times of confusion, I can live blessed. In times of great victory, I recognize where it came from. Because surrendering to Jesus is not the end of your story. It's the beginning of a cultural transformation inside of you, in your family, and in the city. But the life of blessing is not dependent on you and your smarts, your hustle and your personality, your finances, your family pedigree, the poor in spirit. And when we take a step, all of heaven rejoices, the Bible says, when we surrender our life to Jesus through that, that door of being poor in spirit and say, God, I need you. The Bible says that when we repent and, and return to God, that we pass from one kingdom to another. We pass from darkness to light. We pass from confusion to purpose. We pass from death to life. We pass from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son. All in a moment. And life is never the same. The poor in spirit is your doorway to a transformed life. The poor in spirit is your doorway to God's lasting healing in your life. The poor in spirit is the open doorway to God's fulfillment that you've tried to find in every other place. The poor in spirit is your doorway into a release of hope in your midst of confusion. That's why we have things like groups. It's because we want you to come into and experience all that God has for you and with people begin to take steps forward into being what God called you to be. That's why we have things like Grow Track right after the service is because we want you to find your purpose because God made you for greatness. He didn't make you to be a sideline person. He didn't make you to just be an attender. He made your life to be engaged in the great purpose of God to change the world. That's what he's been about always. It's still about it right now. It's why I'll preach my heart out for it because I believe that God sees you and where you are and sees potential, not problem. He sees gold, not junk. That's what God sees. But we come through the doorway of being poor in spirit. God, I need you. I invite you to close your eyes for a moment. I just want to give people an opportunity to respond. Just with every head bowed and every eye closed, and just for the, in this moment, if you say, Pastor, I need to come through the doorway into all that God has for me. I need to surrender my life to Jesus. I've been away from God. I know I'm not right with God. Maybe you've never made that commitment to Jesus. If that's you, just raise your hand real quick, and I want to pray for you. On my left, your right. Say, Pastor, that's me. Yes. Anyone else? Yes. Yes. Thank you. And right down Main Street, right down the center aisle. Who's that? Anybody? Thank you. On my right, your left. Yes. See you. Anyone else? This is your day. A brand new life through a door of opportunity, a door of humility door of poor in spirit. Anyone else? My right, your left. Come on. Now, family, I'm going to ask you to pray with these three or four people that raise their hands and say, I'm going to make Jesus the forgiver and leader of my life. Or I'm returning to God. Can you do that with me, family? All right. Father, so we're going to repeat after me. Jesus, I acknowledge my need for you. I am a sinner. I need a Savior. 
I repent from just being in the crowd and I want to follow you. I surrender my life to you. I need you. You're my Savior. see your face. Tell the person that brought you. Talk to me. Talk to Pastor Daniel. Talk to Pastor Mike. Talk to somebody that looks like they belong here. I don't know. Maybe just tell somebody. Be amazing. And we want to help you get going on your journey in Jesus. In fact, even today, right after the service, 1215, we have free lunch and, and uh, Daniel and Katie are going to be doing Grow Track right after. If you're new to the church or you're, you're, you just made a decision for Jesus, free lunch, 1215 to 115, an opportunity to just engage in the goodness of God. Now, here, I'm a, if you're here and you didn't make that decision for Jesus, you're, this is your church home. I'm going to, it's going to be bold. I'm going to ask you to be bold. If you're here today and you know that you need to take a step forward and follow Jesus, you, yeah, you made it, you've got your ticket, but you need to engage in what God has for you. You know what it means. You know if you're not engaged in the way that God has for you. I'm just going to ask you to be very bold. Put your hand up right now. Say, I need to engage in a whole new way. Come on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Look around. Come on, if that's you, if you need to put your hand up and say, God, I need your help. I need to surrender my agenda. I need to surrender my time. I need to surrender my way. I need to surrender my schedule. I need to surrender, Lord. I need to move in a whole new way. Family, I want you to look around you. The rest, if you see somebody with their hand up around you, I want you to go to them right now and just pray for them real quickly. We're going to do our service a little different right now. If you call this your church home, go to that person, and I just want you to pray the power of God over them. I want you to pray that God will bless them in a powerful way. I want you to pray the mercy of God to be released over their life. Keep your hand up until someone comes and prays with you. Somebody on that side yet? In the back there. Come on. We need you, Jesus. Way in the back on that far side. Somebody there. Keep your hand up until somebody's there praying over you. Just pray blessing of God over their life. That as they enter through the doorway of humility, the doorway of the important spirit, that they will begin to see God do amazing and powerful things in their life. Yes, yes, yes. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for what you're doing in our church, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the way that you're moving. Thank you for people. Lord, that made a decision for Jesus for, that will forever alter their destiny. Father, thank you for people taking steps forward to engage their life. Thank you, God, that you're moving. Lord, we say yes to you, Jesus.